Welcome to another special episode of The Unbalanced Note. I'm Brian Kluger, and we have a fantastic episode today. I'm joined by the co-host with the most, the man I want to do to a dream world in, in life, Mark Chafferdini. How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm blissfully wonderful. It's great being your friend, man. We travel to other Earths, and you blow my mind with eye origins. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. We have a tag team intercontinental champions of film and music. Oh, my gourd. Mike Cahill and Will Bates talking about the film Bliss. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. <laughs> oh, we're going to get into all this great music, this great new film that's coming out. But first, we have to start at the very beginning. Uh, let's start with you, Mike. Where did it all begin for you in film? Was it something you watched on television with your parents? Was it something somebody showed you on a movie? Where did it all begin for you? Uh, first of all, thank you so much, Brian. And thanks, Mark, for having us. This is so cool and an honor uh, to be on your show. And uh, um, and I guess I'll just jump right in. I mean, I uh, I discovered filmmaking as a as a very young boy I was playing with like a Fisher Price cameras when I was six and uh and I remember um you know just because it was one of those cameras where you press record and let go and press record and let go and press record and let go and so you would you would literally lay out the shots one by one and uh just discovering how that worked it felt like magic to me and I felt like like this was it, it held the magic of, of, uh, of magicians, but it was something I could do. And I don't know, I, 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 uh, I've been in love with it ever since. And I, I studied economics in school, but fortunately I ended up making films in my life. There, there you go. Do you remember on that Fisher Price camera, uh, the first kind of movie you made? I, uh, my first movie, I, I remember, like, I remember being, uh, I f- filmed my little brother driving, like pretending to drive our parents' car. And then I pulled a matchbox car with a string. And then I had him pretend to drive the car and I pulled the matchbox car. And so I was doing like interior, exterior, interior, exterior. And, and then I pulled the car into a swimming pool and, uh, or a puddle or something like that. And then I had him climb out of a, a swimming pool. And so for me, I was like, wow, you can, it's like a, a trick that, uh, it looks like he was driving a car. And that, to me, again, that felt like amazing that, you know, you could do this as a kid. That, oh, that's great. I and mean, here we are with Bliss. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, and the same question uh, for you, Will. Where did it all begin for you with music? Um, I guess I've just always been fascinated with music and film. And, and I feel like I discovered music and movies at the same time when I was six years old as well it's funny that it's always when you're six isn't it um <laughs> I like realized I, it kind of dawned on me that this person called John Williams wrote all that music that I loved so much and I sang the entire score of Star Wars for my parents one morning and they went out and bought me a violin that I then tortured them with for about a decade <laughs> Um, but yeah, it just it it was always it was always that kind of symbiotic relationship between music and film that just like 
obsessed me for for so long and after the violin i i like discovered the saxophone and then was the lead singer in a band for a while wrote a lot of techno in london and all, all that whole time i was always kind of doing various different things but the only way i ever knew how to support myself was writing music for short films or commercials or I've, I've managed to get through my whole life without having a proper job which i feel really grateful yeah. for so. <laughs> and as as a fellow saxophone and clarinet player here is right it on. required to play the saxophone without a shirt <laughs> oh yeah constantly constantly or the little wife beater it depends. Yeah. <laughs> perfect perfect so i know will and you've worked with Mike for quite a while. How did your relationship blossom and start? Um, we met back in when we were both living in New York. We met through mutual friends in Brooklyn and we worked on, I think, the, yeah, the first thing we did together was Another Earth and then iOrigins and then a whole ton of television. Um, I think we've done like five shows, four shows. Four shows, seven four shows. together, yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, every single thing I've ever done, I've done with you. You're like my brother. I was, I was thinking about that right before this call, that you, I've actually collaborated with you more than I've collaborated with anybody, like, that's other cool. than myself. I will say that it is not to get turned into a total love fest straight away, but without question, my happiest memories like creating music for film are with this man like there's no question it's just always been my greatest pleasure and we've done so many things together but every time we do something together it feels like he's always getting me to do something nuts that I've never done before and it just feels so different every time it's it's really special man and I have a lot to thank him for too uh, vice versa vice versa I feel like I feel like it wouldn't be a film I feel like I couldn't do something without you you are like my it'd be like working without your lungs or something you know or like living without without an organ but uh yeah I mean Will's like I feel like we've developed over the years too we can go into some strange places musically we can experiment really um we like there's a freedom to just go way off the deep end and find our way back to the shore you know mm -hmm. and I feel like that's that's a really beautiful creative partnership to have and to have that like there are people that you can kind of experiment with but with Mike it always feels like it's a safe place to do that and if things do get too crazy we can kind of figure out the way to journey back to and that was kind of our experience with Bliss wasn't it in a way um you know, like finding the tone of the movie and just really just playing with it. It was just so fun, like finding the language for it. It's yeah, great. Yeah. It's it's great to see this, uh, this friendship between you two. Uh, there has to be kind of like a stepbrothers moment, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, where it was like, did we just become best friends? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember this moment? <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, that's cute. That's cute. Do, do, do you remember like that moment where you're like, oh, I'm going to work with this guy for the next 20 years? <laughs> to me, I would say, I, you know, it's not a moment necessarily, but it's like there's, um, you know, when you think about any art form, the, the, the reason they even exist is because they do something that words or language or like regular communication can't do. So they, they, they're like, they're, they're capable of, you know, a dance performance is capable of doing something that you can't speak. 
too, or, or a film can do that, or uh, a painting can do that. Or, and, and so there's the, the, the wordless things. And when I, I remember hearing, um, like I, I, it's something, it's a combination of melodies, uh, uh, instrument, in, instrumentation selection, like instrument selection and rhythms and vibes, all, like there's a, there's a certain specificity that this cat has uh, that really uh, ignites this dark corner of the world that I love. And, and I, I could never say like, you know, it's what I, it's like, well, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I, I can recognize it when I hear it. And, and it's rare, it's rare to find someone who can, can, can dig that up and pull that out and, and demonstrate it. Cause I can't even speak to what it is. Uh, but, but I, I recognize that the first time I heard Will's music. Wonderful. It's such an abstract thing to talk about sometimes. Like sometimes it's just better to, I think we really trust each other and, and there's, there's like less that needs to be said sometimes and you, I'll just like do the thing and then we can start talking. Sometimes it's just better to make the thing and then start talking afterwards. Like I feel like that. I was thinking the other day about the magicians. I remember when you, um, you like sang this lullaby that you'd been singing Maya and you like sang it down the phone and I recorded it and we wanted to create the, the thing for fillery, right? With the, with the grandfather clock. And I was just like, I'll just kind of write a jazz standard around Mike's like weird little melody. And, and that was in a weird way. That's what the main titles became. I like recorded that whole thing and then took a sledgehammer to it and like turned it into that ghostly thing that, lasted for five seasons or whatever but yeah it's cool and that you know didn't really it, stuff like that doesn't require a massive amount of communicating especially I mean we communicate on a different plane I feel like it's cool yeah. it's amazing actually because we can speak sort of abstractly about you know um I don't know. Like, for example, the, we, so Wills is always involved very, very early on. I, I, like I sent him the script to Bliss when it was like the raw, raw beginnings of it. So like I, my first draft that was, you know, um, I finished it sort of, I, I feel like I finished my first draft in the beginning of, or in 2017. And yeah, and I sent it to him, I, I sent it to him early on in the, well, basically uh, before I had like polished the script and and we like tinker and we talk and we like play and then and then he sort of does these sketches and I remember I don't I don't remember when it was but he, the first batch of things that he felt emanate from the words on the page among them was this track that he did where it was this woodwind thing and it had this these sounds of uh, it sounded like uh, trains it sounded like these these like uh, what was the instrument, the woodwind? It's it's basically a mellotron and saxophones, of course. Sure. Mellotron and saxophones. <laughs> Somehow it sounded like trains driving and and like lots of trains and fall and more and more trains. And a train can be sort of grating and like, oh, it's like a little bit annoying. It's like, oh my gosh, like who wants to live right next to the train track? It's so loud and annoying. And somehow he 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 started off in this tone that was sort of grading but then it became beautiful it's sort of over it, it transcended what it was and it became uh the the most it, it felt like a masterpiece in just one it was one instrument it felt that that one whatever that melotron 
saxophone thing is, but uh, it, it was the it, one sort of sound that kept overlapping and overlapping and overlapping. And I lost my shit. I was like, this is like, this is an absolute masterpiece. And, and that was the, that's, that's, that, that's how early and, and sort of strange our conversations are about musical things, trains coalescing to transcend and, and find beauty in that. Like there's beauty in the chaos in a way, which is, is like the theme of the, the, the arc of the film is like chasing, chasing some sort of idea of perfection and then arriving to a place where you actually want the chaos. You want to embrace the, the, the messiness, the trains, the noise, the messiness. By the way, have you guys seen the film? Oh yeah, yeah. twice. No way, really? <laughs> yeah, I had to go back and make sure the things that I thought were actually happening and I came up with a whole new batch of questions. So, um, but that actually probably is a good uh, segue because a lot of times when you start a project early before there's picture or maybe even actors selected, how did this train theme, you know, did, did it dig an earworm in, a, in a Mike's ear and stay in the picture or how did it develop over the course of the production? I think... You know, a lot of other cues kind of changed and transformed and went through all sorts of orchestral phases and all sorts of fun stuff. That cue is basically that sketch, isn't it? It's like the same from that very first, which I kind of love that, that there's one piece that was, it was in that first batch of sketches, but I, I promise you, I swear to God, it was literally the first thing that I wrote for the whole movie. Um, oh. It's called Sketch 2. Um, and I think because I wanted sketch one to win <laughs> uh, but, but yeah um I don't know what happened to that one but um yeah sketch two it's like it's it's at the end of the film I don't want to ruin the movie for anyone but it's 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 that final walk at the end okay. um but yeah I, I you know and having getting that email or that phone call with Mike once he'd listened to that just like sets me it's it's how it always has worked with us I feel like th- his enthusiasm for a certain thing will just kind of propel the the next like in this case year of work it, it you know that that enthusiasm and that like joy is so infectious that he has with everyone that he works with I think and and it just like made me know what to do next and kind of go on this crazy journey and yeah it kind of dictated a lot of the rest of the score in a way and by the way, and to add to that, which is, you know, when, you, when you're fortunate enough to find people who you really love to work with and you work with over and over again, like Wills and like several other people I work with, there's a, but Wills in particular, as we have this deep relationship, is that, that the, 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 the wordless things that he does, like this song or like, like the song that takes place Brian in the picture right behind you, the roller disco song, like the, that, that actually came late in the game. The, the song that uh, 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 Sky does the lyrics for, the, or does the, the vocals for. Um, these things inform the movie for me. Like, it, like for me, the movie's this living thing that you're, you're sort of, you, you, you don't know what it is until you're, you're, you don't know what it is until you lock picture and you're color correcting it, honestly. You really are, it's like a, it's a thing that you're, you're sort of dancing with and looking at from different angles. It's revealing itself to you in so many ways. And so when you find these amazing humans who are passionately pursuing this strange trek through some darkened forest to see how to get over there, you, 
you, you know, everybody brings something that informs what it is. And so those songs opened up uh, or clarified a lot of what I was chasing, you know, with the film. Like that idea of perfection, you know, I mean, that, that arc that to arrive, to embrace, to like, to the, 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 the fall from paradise and then actually enjoying the fall from paradise, you know, to, to like the exhilaration of the, you know, uh, like, and, it, and it's a theme that it's like, I think back to another earth when, she, when uh, Brit's like ticking on the, she tells the story of the Russian cosmonaut and it's like that annoyance, but then finding beauty in the annoyance. Like there's a, there's something that I really appreciate the ability to, 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 to say, you know, things may be tough or things may be hard, but there's beauty in it. There's something beautiful about it. There may be trains that are creating all this noise, but there's, there's, there's harmony there. There's something, you know, moving and, and soul shattering. And, and, and that's revealed to me through collaborations like Will's. Right. Well, you know, Mike, uh, the, the, the great thing about the movies that you make is that the, their mind, I keep saying mind-blowing, but they expand your mind. They make you think of things uh, and the world in a way that you're not used to seeing. And this, in, the great thing about Bliss is that there's this, you know, split duality. You have uh, one worldly construct and you have another worldly construct. And so, Will, how do you look at that and you say, okay, I have a theme, you know, do you have a duality between one world and the other, and how does how does the narrative inform your palette, especially in this film? Um, we talked about that right at the beginning, this idea that there would always be this kind of lush kind of elegance and refined perfection and calm and serenity and bliss, and then this kind of harsh craziness in the ugly world. And I think that we, we really had to and th this kind of going back to what Mike just said about the edit and sometimes when you when you shoot something the tone that you've got is not at all what you imagine it to be so imagine like we had that conversation remember having it at Foy's after I I'd read the script Fall on Yourself my studio in Hollywood I'd read the read the script and we talked about this kind of absurdism and we were going to do like tons of brass and like almost a sort of like eastern european yeah. sensibility with the with the crazy wild brass and all these like big sounds and and so and like live players and all of this stuff and it, it it really informed my first batch of sketches but then you you started shooting and we started looking at the footage and then and even later like getting into the edit and doing all of that craziness and sometimes it was just like we went we went we went deep on this yeah, we, went, we went deep I mean like there was one round of stuff that was just really out there and I think it was it was super cool but it was just almost like too much and I think yeah, grabbing that, a lot of attention yeah yeah and and in the end we we there's still a lot of that stuff that's in the score I think about like that there's a fantastic drummer Spencer Cohen who's featured on a lot of the stuff in in the ugly world a lot of his playing is still in there but I had like crazy, like fragmented trumpets and my sax playing baritone stuff, squealing. So there's still little elements of that stuff in there, but it's like treated in a very specific way. And I think in a, in a sense, because we went through this kind of journey of figuring out the tone for the ugly world, we landed on something really unique and weird and, and perfectly kind of encapsulates the, the difference. So there is like, there are melodies that exist that you get kind of fragments of 
in the ugly world that then kind of blossom into these like larger, more kind of bold versions of themselves in the bliss world. Um, it was also my the first time that I got to work with an orchestra, which is really fun. Like finally, you know, in a in a way, Mike and I have managed to over the years do everything on a bit of a shoestring, and you know, I've used fantastic players, and I'll always I like write the part, email the PDF to my buddy in New York and he'll record in his apartment and then I'll like overdub him and make it sound like it's an orchestra. But finally I could be like, Lev, we've got some money. Let's put a proper orchestra together. So he like put a whole section together and we recorded in New York and had a, a, you know, we were really able to use the tool of the orchestra to kind of do this thing that we talked about, which was just kind of create this like lush, perfect soundscape for for the bliss world. It was really, really fun. And it fills out, right? It like it, it like envelops you in a way. I remember that it's it's interesting that idea of tone too, because so much of tone is lives in the is in in the music. And that that original like we had this difficult, we had this very challenge, this very difficult challenge at the beginning, which is that the ugly world or the world that we see that's sort of filled with tension and 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 it's frustrating and it's um uh you know he's about to it, it, greg's about to be fired and, and the, you know there's this uh we i wanted to create this sensation that you suspect something's wrong with the world a little bit like you, you're a little bit suspicious about the reality ever so slightly and we tried things with cinematography we tried a lot of different uh, techniques, but musically, we we tried to do this like really sort of crazy off the wall brass thing. That was like it almost sounded like uh, like as if you had like a bunch of people with balloons, and you know when you like let the air out and you pinch it, it's like years of training. What can I say? <laughs> it was amazing. It's amazing, and it's like so badass and dope. You're like whoa, like. Um, you know, there was actually even, I rem- oh my gosh, Wills, I remember this problem that we had, which was that the opening sequence was so powerfully crazy good to the point where it overshadowed everything. And we're like, wait, wait, wait we got to like, we have to balance it actually. Yeah, it was like- I think it was also, it was just kind of a bit alienating and just, it was like leaning on the horn, you know, like just... Just yeah, we went there. Like, we, the, no one will ever accuse us of not trying to go all the way. <laughs> we have to find our way back to, like, something that's, like, a palatable or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then we found the tone. We found, and what we have now, and I remember one of the, like, the final, uh, one of the final, like, uh, brushstroke changes was the addition of, uh, of uh, melancholy to the warmth. And it was like one of the most crazy things. Like you could say to Wills, is there a way to make this warm thing have just a tad bit of forlorn, bittersweet melancholy, right? Like, how does that translate musically? I have no idea, but he's like, "Mm, I have an idea. And he changed maybe two notes on a theme and suddenly your heart is breaking. Suddenly you're like, you're like, you, you, you get that sensation of love, but life isn't long enough. Or, you know, like, it's like that beauty, but like it's, it's uh and, and that's that that final theme and it plays in the climactic moment it's you know it plays i guess three times as reprised throughout the film um but that was one of the last things in addition to the to the, the song. song it's it, it's so good and i i gotta ask um so 
Bliss, both visually and uh, musically, audio-wise, it delivers this feeling, this slice of life that I feel like that can't really be offered in any other sort of medium. I was like, how can you achieve that? Like this, this feeling of um, maybe addiction or and love, and perfectly with the combination of the score and uh, your direction. I I don't see this coming out in any other form. You just perfectly and flawlessly crafted this where I guess the audience might have a thought at the beginning of the film that they don't know about such as addiction. And then at the end, completely have a different, better thought. Does this come into play when you're actually writing and making this movie? Thank you, Brian. That's really nice. That's beautiful to hear that. By the way, this is this is the first interview we're actually doing on the movie. So you guys are really starting it off for us too. Yeah. So, you know, thank you, by the way. And thank you. Knowing that that's your reaction is really moving and 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 means a lot. We we worked on this for years, man. That's crazy to think about it. But um, but yes, and to answer your question is the um we we really wanted to create this audiences are so sophisticated. And the, when they come to a movie, they bring a lot to it, right? They project certain things from themselves onto the screen. And so we, like what, what was very, something I was really chasing or really excited about is creating a biasability of interpretations, you know, like, a, a, like two robust readings of the film in some ways that, that oscillate between the two. And so that you can, you can project your, uh, whether it's addiction, whether it's escapism, whether it's, uh, you know, um, um, you know what, what world do you think is real, right? Which with these dueling worlds are, are, are trying to give evidence to Greg uh, for their veracity. And they're, they're, they're charged, one's charged by, by Isabel and one's charged by Emily. And they're, they're, they're basically trying to say, hey, you know, my version of reality is reality. Uh, that other version of reality is, you know, a trip or you know a simulation right it's it's a new take on Plato's cave in a way like I felt like that that's that's one of the the most ancient stories ever told and and it's retold over and over and over in in cinema and uh and I felt like oh we could do we could do our own version a new sort of fresh version on uh, a world within a world sort of story and and then leave it at the end uh uh, leave it up to the audience to decide because both in some ways have their uh, um, integrity, both versions of the story. So all of those things kind of played into it. But, it, but again, like if the point is like to build a framework so that there's that oscillation so that it, it can live on later, like an audience can participate in the meeting is the, the humble goal that we attempted to do. You succeeded. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That means a lot. That really, really sincerely means a lot. And I love that thing behind you. It's so cool. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Now, let's, let's talk about that scene, actually, the roller skating, the, ro- the disco roller skating rink, because, you know, going from another earth and going from I Origins, this particular scene, like, holy shit, has just tons of stunt work and great musical cues and direction because... It starts off like, oh, we're going through this nice, like, little dance romantic relationship. And then all of a sudden just kind of crashes and burns everywhere around them that brings back to this uh, great scene of them kissing, you know, with destruction around them. <laughs> right. 
Right. Can you talk a little bit about setting up that, sh- setting up this whole scene and how that went into effect? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great question. I love that scene. That was one of that was one of uh, one of the more thrilling on on all different levels of creativity. That scene was so much fun to make. It, like we worked with amazing stunt coordinators, um, roller disco, uh, uh, roller skating choreographers. Uh, again, a lot of this conversation is about the song and the song. Like originally, we didn't have the song. The song came late in the game. Wills was writing a a, a song for the credits for the end credits. And he wrote this song, uh, you and I. And I remember when I first heard it, I was like, this can't just be the, the, the end credit song. This has to, this is, this makes me reimagine the roller disco scene. So I recut this entire scene to that song. It was so actually so potent. It was such a potent moment for me. Like I felt like I rediscovered the film um, after the hiatus from coronavirus in the edit. But um uh, but so like that, that, what that scene is, it's, it's interesting because it's like fun and it's their, their romance is like igniting in many ways. Um, but also it has, a, it has a very taut structure to it. That's not really obvious, but it's the moment where Greg's character um, uh, re-centers his moral compass in the sense he no longer has guilt. It's, and it's gradual, right? So he no longer we need to earn his lack of belief in this reality and we need to earn it step by step by step by step. And we have to, we, there's, there are several vignettes, stunt vignettes in that scene. The first one is a guy breaks through Salma and Owen and then Greg, you know, uses the powers and flings them across the, uh, across the roller disco. And then, um, and we intercut them hooking up in the bathroom. And then, uh, then the next one, so that's like an aggression against them, right? So his retaliation is justified, right? You're attacking me, I'm gonna attack back. The next one is this guy uh, um, slaps this girl and Sama's character takes him down, which is also justified. It's an injustice against somebody else. Take him down. The third one is this elderly woman who's like slowly trying to get onto the roller rink and she gives uh, Isabel this disapproving look and then Salma's character Isabel is like Greg take her down and now this is the bridge so this is where it's like do we hold on to the audience or do we lose them we have to like carefully work our way across that bridge because that move is not justified right that's when you that's when you cross a threshold and he says no no he's resistant he's resistant she's like come on she's not real and then woof and then she goes down and then for good measure he takes the older man standing next her down as well and if you if the audience sticks with us through that if we can if we can get a laugh out of that if we can get a then we're with greg in this journey we have let go of our faith in this reality we're just gonna have fun with it and so then it turns into this spiraling like let's knock everybody down like shooting them all down right and left stunts and and that's now you've now you've you've uh, you are so tied into his POV, his emotional relationship with this reality. Um, and yeah, so that's what that scene, even though it's, it's like sort of, it ended up in, as a creative scene, it was, you know, the top for everything. The experience was fun. Salma and Owen were amazing, like learning how to skate. The stunts were so much fun. The music was amazing. Uh, the only challenge was that we had to do it very, 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 very quickly in like half a day somehow. We had a very tight schedule. Wow. 
I've always wondered that if that was like a multi-day shoot. When we first broke it down, me and the AD, Laz, he was like, all right, we were like, we need three days for this. And then we were like, well, we can only afford half a day. <laughs> and we were like, okay, great. How are we going to do that? But it was so, I, 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 we so storyboard, we were so prepared. We storyboarded it, you know, every single thing. Like we had a board of, I don't know, it was like however many shots comprise the whole thing, maybe 50 shots, very, very precisely organized. We rehearsed it for months and, uh, and, you know, our, our, uh, or however many, the, the amount of setups we were doing, we were knocking off uh, one setup every 15 minutes, which is unheard of wow. um, in movie making. We were just we were like, there were times where we didn't even cut the camera. We set up three stunts in a row. We we're like, all right, shoot this one and then slide over to this one, shoot this one and then slide over to this one and shoot that one. And so we, we jammed through it. That, no, it was, it was great. I love that. It's like, we're going to get, we, can we have three days? How about 12 hours? <laughs> like, perfect. <laughs> and, I, and I love like, it's, uh, I mean, now you talking to me about that whole scene, it's like a couple of Jedis learning their, to use the force <laughs> in a different way. I look, I like that. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, it was fun. It, it, it looks fun. And it actually was a lot of fun to, to make that too. Well, there, there's also a lot of poetry in it because, um, you know, when it gets to the point where, uh, I mean, it, it goes all Sam Peck and Pa and Owen Wilson's getting people down with the finger gun. Uh, you know, you taught the you and I song that Will wrote the lyrics to. And, and when I picked up on it, when I heard it in the, the credits and the, the, my favorite bit in the whole part is you and I can run to something else with all that's left behind. It's you and I that's left alone in this. And there's some nice poetry because once they lay waste to all the people in the roller rink, it's them in the center. And I just, I, I love how all that came together. So feast for the eyes, the ears, and the soul. I love you guys. Bravo, bravo. Beautifully said and beautiful, beautiful wills. Yeah, I mean, there's beautiful, beautiful writing, beautiful performance. And you like that, again, that song, it inspires so much. And, and um yeah, it's 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 difficult to do that. That's when words rise above words. That's when they sublimate and become something else. And yeah, awesome. Well, can you guys talk about how? I mean, one one of the great things about the score is it's really so over the map because I mean the the story can go in so many ways. You've got these amazing technological constructs that allow you to do things that you can't do in the real world. And these, you know, you got these cool elements like the brain box. But I think my favorite part in the whole movie is the sort of a there's a, a, a rooftop scene where they're running and there's these all these little electronic beeps. And I just I like how that added freneticism to it. it. It tied to the this electronic world and it was a little bit meta. So can you talk a little bit more about those elements and beats, Will? Yeah, that was, um, you know, it's funny when we were talking earlier about the kind of craziness that we had in the in the beginning I feel like that cue is probably the most that's sort of like the the best example of that crazy palette that we were finding in the beginning um that's the for me the thing that really drives it is that there's this wonderful drummer who I work with called Spencer Cohen and Spence just did an incredible performance on that cue and then I just went nuts with modular synths and and we had landed on this this theme, so I was able to kind of incorporate that in there. But I think the thing that really drives it is a is a live performance, um, and that was something that we really wanted to to get. Like I, you know, there's a lot of 
beauty and lush flavors in the score throughout it but it was always really important that there would be this like feeling of of uh humanity and some sort of some kind of virtuosic example of like frenetic magic and i and spence is just spence is one of those people that i've also been playing with for 15 years he's he's in my band and he flew out to LA like three or four times while we were doing bliss and just he'd come out for a few days at a time and we would just have so much fun just him just going nuts and that was one of those one of those moments and then yeah just like tons of fun synths and crazy weird string writing that's like my happy place I think so Now, when you get the story so early in advance, you can maybe read into things and it's great to have the discussion and the shorthand with Michael. Do you put little Easter eggs in there, you know, references to this, maybe audio clues to this? Because on the visual counterpart, I noticed that there's some prism lens flares. There's little images of jewels everywhere, even um, I, I won't name where they are, but it's kind of giving you visual cues. So can you guys maybe speak to how those or maybe tell you like M. Night Shyamalan putting red anytime Bruce Willis was dead you know can you talk to that aspect um yeah I mean there's a there's a few cues where at the beginning I you know there is sort of the obvious ones where I'll take a theme like the the theme when they when he first leads her to her to the to the tent the top tent um there's a, a piece of music there that plays that's mirroring the same piece when she takes him on the kind of the scenic route, like around bliss. That's a sort of same cue, different instrumentation. But then there are other like way subtler ones, like while they're having dinner, there's a melody that is the same melody as the one where he, the one that we just talked about at the at the end of the movie where he walks, like that reappears there. It was, this is such a blast for me to like be able to use all these tools and especially towards the end, of the process once we got all those themes gathered and all the instruments and being able to kind of manipulate things and kind of give little little clues here and there because like the way that Mike has shown he showed me like early on while he was cutting like all of the the mirrors you would like put the the two shots on the same screen and it's just like if you see them all together it's really phenomenal it's like mind-blowing and it, I think it's going to be a reason why people will just continue to watch it and find more of those little cues everywhere clues and cues yes. well, Wills is, well Wills is talking about too that for it's, it's interesting because we're doing an audio podcast but visually because I don't know you can't really show clips of it but in so we have these two different worlds and uh, and they're both vying for your belief the bliss world is the real world the ugly world's the real world. Which one is true? Which one is which one is true? And meanwhile, from a from a compositional cinematography point of view, um, we, we 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 do different things to to distinguish the the worlds from a cinematography perspective. We use anamorphic lenses for the ugly world that have this stretched uh, bokeh, and we have these very clean spherical lenses for the bliss world we we use steady cams and more smoother studio mode in the bliss world we use more handheld and a little you know a little bit wilder camera in the ugly world um but there are various places where we repeat the exact composition it's something that fincher does the beginning of gone girl and the end of gone girl that's a very famous one or stanley kubrick does in um 
a clockwork orange when he when he introduces the house and he slides over it's like the repeating it's like an intertextual uh compositional repeat i guess you would call it and so it's so what we we were very careful and uh huge props to our production designer uh Cass Farhani he um he built these worlds where the 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 polygons or the shapes and the structures and the things that uh, that that are in the environment repeat and the most obvious one for example is the the um, homeless tents on the way to uh, Isabel's tarp home and the farmers markets tents in the bliss world like those are perfectly constructed if you put those shots on top of each other you realize that everything is actually repeating there's a guy who has these bottles in the homeless world and there's yeah and there's all these olive oil in the in the in the bliss world and and I think in the trailer they actually put them right next to each other but in the movie they're not near each other at all they're very far they, they're separated at, at quite large distances in time and for me I feel like that that it, that doesn't live in the conscious mind that then starts tickling the unconscious mind right that's like the that's like you 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 feel the sense of deja vu you you feel this sort of disruption to your own sensation of what's real or what is not real you're you're you start questioning you you actually start gathering evidence yourself to say oh actually this is the real world or this is the real world or maybe they're the same world and and so musically we do a similar thing or sonically we do a similar thing um but it's 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 using tone and melody and 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 all the things wills was was talking about. So we use we use all the different elements to kind of all the different departments to kind of add just a little bit, and then hopefully the it creates a uh, the, the the collection of all these crafts build a um, uh, you know build towards this theme. Excellent, and, and and you know when I'm watching it, there's a there's a point in the movie where a person tells a story about the uh, the world existing on the back of a turtle, and on that turtle is uh, it's another turtle and it goes on below. Did you ever have an idea about trying to do a, a third level, a fourth level, or, you know, how did you decide on just the duality of the ugly, you know, the gritty world and the pretty world? This is a great question. The uh, Aristotle's infinite regress issue problem. Turtles all the way down. The, uh, you know, it's, if you're in a simulation now, then you can eventually create a simulation and they can create a simulation they can create a simulation. Where's ground zero? Um, of world what's the first one but uh i didn't think of i didn't think of making another one i really wanted it to be the duality i think that was not it's not like a dream within a dream like inception goes all the way there <laughs> we, we wouldn't we'd get lost there but i i did like the idea the 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 idea from the beginning was um like the, the, there's a there's a mathematics to the structure of the film so the like if you, you can almost divide the film into four uh quarters and act one ends at the the quarter point and that's when uh isabel and greg uh kiss at the tent home and then the midpoint they eject from the simulated world and then act three uh which is at the three fourths point there's one quarter left it uh or, or like act two two b or the second half of act two the the two worlds start colliding right they start popping their 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 uh they're fighting with each other. And that was always part of the intention is that these worlds would kind of overlap and then act three, they have to go back in and, um, and fix the problem. <laughs> okay. So, and, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, th- I'm glad you mentioned Inception because Brian and I were having a discussion and he saw he saw Nolan and I saw uh, Verhoeven. I saw Total Recall or The Matrix. And I was just wondering what both musically and stylistically, what did you guys draw from if it was any or none of those? Musically, Wills? Musically, uh, yeah, I don't know. We never really talked about any specific references. I, I, I don't think we ever do. You know, one of the nice things about um, working with Mike is that because of the fact that we've always been doing this kind of early in the process, I think one of the goals for Mike is to just avoid temp altogether. Um, we did that with Another Earth and we did that with iOrigins and then we did it with all the TV stuff. And and it's so great because it just means that we end up inventing a new thing together and then we can kind of sculpt away. But yeah, there's there's never... There's never been a moment where we've talked reference. I think, okay, maybe one, and that was <laughs> abandoned very quickly. Oh, but yeah. we talked about um, that movie Underground. Didn't we talk about that? Yeah, 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 because yeah. of the horns. Yeah. Of the horns. Do you know that movie? It's kind of a crazy, it's this family that think that they're living through the Second World War and they're like, they live underground and they're just kind of, in their own little bubble and then they realize that they've been underground for 30 years and anyway the, the music is is bonkers and it's sort of like almost like gypsy sounding kind of crazy so but we we tried it and abandoned it very quickly but yeah i, I feel like never never a, a ref gets spoken in our world at least right yeah i mean I, it's interesting because you like i uh there is that sensation like I've heard a lot of people say, draw the connection to The Matrix, obviously, because The Matrix is a simulation movie. It's the most famous simulation movie. There's, it's impossible to make a movie about a simulation and not um, uh, not acknowledge that or know that like that is, that's a huge one. But, but, um, but it's interesting you mentioned Total Recall, that like Interstellar comes up, Inception comes up. But if you, if you or uh, Eternal Sunshine Spotless Mind comes up, one of the interesting things when I was, um, pitching it actually, I had to I had to do this like pretty proper pitch to Amazon, and uh, and I I referenced every single uh, Plato's Cave story in movies, and so Plato's Cave, if you're unfamiliar, it's it's 380 BC, uh, the allegory of the cave. It's um it's a very famous story, a uh, short story about prisoners living in a cage or uh, in a cave, and they're uh, looking at the shadows on the wall and they see these objects, you know, are you familiar with this story? More or less, it's, it's, an, it's like, a full... so anyways, the, the, uh, the, the idea is that one of the prisoners, so like this is, they've been born in this cave, they've lived their entire lives in this cave and they stare at these shadows on the wall and uh, that's all they know. That is the world to them. And one day, one of the prisoners gets uh, loose breaks free from the, uh, the, uh, the handcuffs and, and realizes that the, the shadows are uh, shadows of objects that are being lit by this fire behind them in the cave. They, didn't, they weren't able to see the fire. And then this prisoner like kind of makes their way up and around the back and realizes there's the, like a light and they, they go out into the world and they see the world outside and it's this beautiful lush, you know, there's rivers and there's the sea and there's forests and there's beautiful air to breathe. and and they're like, holy shit, my whole life has been living in a cave. And they go run back in and they say, you know, to the other prisoners, these shadows on the wall aren't real. Like there's something more. We're just, we're just prisoners in a cave. 
And this story, and so bliss is the story. It's this story told again, um, but in my sort of way. But if you look at the history of cinema, The Wizard of Oz, The Matrix, obviously the most famous one, but The Wizard of Oz is uh, one of the earlier ones that you could look at um, uh, Horton Here's a Who, you could look at Inception, you could look at Eternal Sunshine, you could look at Clockwork Orange, you could look at The Conformist, you could look at uh, Cinema Paradiso, you could look at Jordan Peele's Us, which is brilliant. You could look at um, uh, uh, Shutter Island, you can look at um, the Lego movie, you know, like all these are, <laughs> the idea is it's a, it's a world within a world and, and religions, like all the sort of theological concept that, that you're on earth, but there's a paradise beyond here or that the world was created and there's something else. Like all of these things, actually, most of them came after Plato's cave, oddly enough. So this is one of the archetypal stories. This is one of the, the founding myths of humanity or one of the earlier myths of humanity. And it serves as a sort of engine to look at what reality is. Like what, like I have this sneaking suspicion that, that this is not all there is. There's more to it, you know? And, and we, we, we scratch at that. We try and figure out um, what else is there. And so those movies feel like references, I guess, but they're not really references. They're just, it, it, they're just evidence that philosophical filmmakers or people, storytellers in general are, 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 have a sneaking suspicion that there's something true about this story. And so they're retelling it in new ways. Beautifully said, like my mind is blown, like <laughs> Clockwork Orange Lego movie. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it's super genre. It, it doesn't even, it's a story that doesn't have anything to do with genre. It actually, it could be comedy. It could be drama. It could be science fiction. It could be, you know, it can be whatever. And, and the, I hope the story continues to get told by other filmmakers in the future because it is one of those, uh, it, it's, it, it's an existential, it's that big ultimate existential question. What, what are we and, and is this all there is? Uh, I like this. Um, I'm going to jump into a couple of fun questions for you guys. Uh, so um, I'll start with uh, Will. Um, and this, the same question will go to you, Mike. Uh, Will, what is the most thrilling music experience you have both as a fan and as a professional in the music business? And then with Mike, it'll be for film. Most thrilling. Most thrilling. Wow, that's, um, that's interesting. That's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> like it would be like a concert you saw front row? Yeah, or I, it... I think the thing that maybe probably informed this is a little crazy but the thing that probably made me my jaw drop the most I think I was maybe seven or eight years old my my dad was best friends with a guy called Steve Hackett who uh, was the guitarist at that time he was the guitarist for Genesis and back when Genesis was like Genesis <laughs> very out and weird um and then Steve left and, and had is now a very successful solo artist but he He's actually, side note, a bit of a mentor for me and some of my earliest memories are all with him. The first time I was ever recording in a recording studio was, was with Steve. But I went to a sound check, a Genesis sound check. I was probably five, actually. And I remember standing in the wings and watching and listening to the loudest thing I think I'd ever heard at that moment. And it just like blew my face off. I'm not a I'm not a prog rock person or anything like that, you know, um, I admire that world. But I think that was the thing that really... Um 
that sheer power was just like so extraordinary and then I was lucky enough to do a bunch of work with Steve later in life and I think that that continues to be something that influenced me greatly um yeah and then I guess yeah first record I ever bought was Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and I've never really looked back it's kind of <laughs> Amazing. I like it. All right, Mike, same question, but uh, most thrilling moment uh, for film with you and both fan and professionally. For a, seeing a film or music in film? Uh, I guess just a film or you can do both or either or. It's interesting because as you were, uh, when you asked the question, the first thing that came to my mind was because I was like, whoa, that's such a strange question. I never thought of like a moment of music in a film that really... Uh, but, but yeah you could do music that would be awesome no so a, a thought came to me just out of the blue and it's from the um julian schnabel's basquiat and there's a scene where gosh it's jeffrey wright and claire forlani and they get into this fight it's, this is like i don't know 20 years ago they get into this fight in this scene and there i remember it's such a vague memory now now but there's like this strange black and white art piece on a television screen and there's a bird eating a frog and it's like a stop motion animation. And uh, cinematically, and so uh, there's this Rolling Stones song that starts playing. And, uh, and Jeffrey Wright's character, Basquiat, <laughs> Jeffrey Wright playing Basquiat, starts calming her and saying, you know, the, there's, uh, oh gosh, I don't know. He, start, he starts saying this like poetic thing to like make this fight go away. And the song is, the, the way the movie was mixed is that the song was, was too loud and he was too soft, but not too, they, it was perfect. Like you couldn't hear him. You couldn't hear what he was saying at all. And it got drowned out by the music. And I thought, wow, can you do this as a film? Of, of course you can do anything you want with a film, but it, I found it so moving and, and powerful and beautiful and simple uh, that, that the audio, the, 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 you know, cause you think dialogue is so vital to a story and the dialogue just started to disappear into the soundtrack. And you just knew subtextually, of course, you didn't need the words, you knew that they were bonding and the music overtook it. And, uh, and that was really instructive in terms of how to use music in a, in a film. Like it doesn't have, it, it, can, it, it, can, it can overcome if it needs to overcome. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> I like that. That's a flashback. Oh my gosh. But that was one of the first films that there was a series of films when I was in college that I, that, that made me re like reimagine being six years old and say like, Oh my gosh, this is what I want to do with my life. Like I love what, I love what this medium can do. You know, like this, there's like I, Steven Soderbergh's sex lives on videotape was another one. And Christoph Kieslowski's red. And, and then Schnabel's Basquiat. These three films, I saw them right in a row. Like I was like 19 years old or something like that. And, uh, and none of them had traditional endings that I was used to growing up in the 90s and seeing like the Titanic or whatever in a movie. <laughs> like, I was like, what? like what, what are these unbelievably um, powerful 
endings that, like look at cinema can do this very strange thing which is can it can transmit this emotion that doesn't have words that, that that you can't actually that that it can do better than anything else cinema can do something better than any other uh, medium at conveying very specific lived moments and, and transmit those so that you as a viewer can feel them and you can't even put a finger on giving words to them you know like we we're always trying to you know, describe emotions with words, and and uh, and I you realize I realized at that age that that this medium was capable of doing something better than words uh, if you leaned into it the right way, and yeah, so that kind of answers both both questions: the one you actually asked and the one I imagined that you asked. <laughs> No, that's great. I love that you brought up uh, Kieslowski, the the trilogy of colors, red, white, and blue, because I remember seeing those in high school and falling in love with red. I thought that was one of the, my favorite films. Uh-huh. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah, great. Man. That has a beautiful soundtrack, too, that uh, yeah. Presnew, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but that... Oh, my gosh, that score is so powerful. Do you know that score, Wills? I don't... I. I'm so embarrassed to say I've never seen it. Oh my gosh, you should see it. I'll send you this one track from it. It's so dope. It's so um, chilling. It's uh, it's so, that's musically, I don't know. I, a lot of people, do you know this? Do you remember the song, Brian, too? It's like the theme song. If you, probably, if you look up like, um, sorry, it's Double Life of Veronique. My bad. Double Life of Veronique's uh, also by Keith. Yes. The, 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 and Ziebner did all of his films, I believe, but uh, it has a very, very powerful score. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, I love it. And so, uh, Mike, I, I just realized that uh, we talked for Another Earth and I Origins, and now this, this is kind of becoming a thing, which I like. Um, and the last time I talked with you for I Origins, I usually ask everybody, um, uh, is there, since you're such a purveyor of cinema, are there any particular scenes in film that always stick out to you that you wake up in the morning and you just like, I, this is what I'm born to do. This will always stick stuck with me. And so when I asked that question to you for I origins and Michael Pitt, Michael Pitt started acting out the good fellas. How the fuck am I funny? Am I a clown? Do I amuse you bit? And you said it was the final scene in eternal sunshine when, um, she says, you're going to find me boring and it's powerful emotions. And then just kind of cut to black And you love that in film. And so I wonder if there's any addition to that, <laughs> to that scene. That had been collected since then. Yes. Since oh my God. I've seen so many great films since then, but uh, you know what? The, the first one that pops into my mind is um, Knights of Kiberia. Have you seen this film? Knights so, of Kiberia. One of the great things about it, it's an old uh, Fellini film. And uh, I love it. Like what's, what's great is there's all, this, there's all these great films that I've never seen and you discover late. So it's not like a current film or anything. But there's this, it's, a, it's about this woman. She has this really, really tough life and uh, not without joy, but very tough life. And, and she's like, say, like at the very end of the film, it gets like coughed. Kafkaskian, whatever the word is, it goes like from bad to like really bad. She loses everything, and and she, and you're just your heart is so broken. It's the final moment, and she's like she's like like this guy that she fell in love with totally stole all her money and then leaves her, and she's walking down this hill, and these musicians 
come and join her. And they're, they're like a Romani or a gypsy sort of musician. They're playing and they're playing like sort of wildly. And she's, you, she's like so sad and they're just playing sort of standing near her. And she just starts like dancing a little bit. And she looks just, she just breaks the fourth wall for an instant. Like she looks right into the camera and cuts the black. And it, it, it was so potent. Uh, and that's a new one that I, that's an oldie, that's an oldie, but a newie for me. Definitely worth a watch. Good deal. And um, for Will, are there, is there a particular music moment in the movie um, that always stuck with you? No matter, you, you mentioned John Williams, I don't know if it would be like the flutes from E.T., you know, when they're all riding the bike or whatever, I don't, something like that. Um, you know, the thing that I, I think about a lot is um, at the end of the 400 Blows, you know, that movie? Oh, yeah. When he's been running and running and running and he runs all the way to the ocean, he's standing at the beach and that's the end of the movie. And that score... But then I think um, uh, Schnabel borrowed it for Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's the same piece of music. But anyway, who, I, I don't even know who the composer is of that original piece from Truffaut's movie. But that that melody is just, it kills me. It's just a, a incredible, beautiful, it's like the most saddest, most moving piece of music that's plucked on a violin. It's like all pizzicato, but it's just so desperately sad. Um, yeah. That, that would be mine. I love that. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, well, speaking of running, I, I was that Mike? I just realized we, because uh, when you said pizzicato, I remember we did the orchestral recording like literally a year ago today, more or less. Yeah, I think it was. It was the last time I was on a plane, I think was coming back from that session. Yeah, man, that was a good day. Good couple of days. That was a really beautiful one. Well, uh, speaking of running, uh, a question I have for the both of you is uh, there's a part in the movie where Owen Wilson is running. And I want to know both logistically and musically how it was done, because Owen Wilson is running in the, the, the alley, the canal way of the, the, the drainage in L.A. And there's no words, but there's there's music. So c- cinematography how did you do it? Was a guy on foot with a steady cam? Was it a truck? Because I didn't see footprints. I didn't see tire tracks. And he just came out of a whole lot of water. And then, <laughs> Will, how do you do something like that when you're trying to make, I mean, Owen Wilson's not the fastest guy in the world, but how do you give that scene some energy and when there's no dialogue? He's so fit, by the way. He really is so fit. I could, because you had to run up a hill. That was very, very, like, I could not walk it and he could run it. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Will. You you can start with musically. That was a that's that's a that's a very important. I'm glad you pointed out that scene. It's a very important scene. Very momentous thing. So that piece of music is the is the one that we talked about right at the beginning. That's the that was the first thing I ever wrote for the movie, and I was oh, the theme too. Yeah, sketch two. You got it. Sketch, exactly. two, sketch two. Um, So he, I I had that moment in my mind. I didn't necessarily think it would be for that scene but I was kind of thinking about the this feeling of resolve I guess like or the beginning of a feeling of resolve or coming to terms with something with a thing that you're walking away from that you don't necessarily want to walk away from um 
and just that kind of it's funny talking about that Truffaut moment to me it's it's kind of a similar emotion it's sort of this sad beauty but it's also got a glimmer of hope on the horizon um and you know to give it movement there's a there's all those instruments that we talked about but one other thing that's in there that's kind of buried is when I played that piece to Spence the drummer guy who happened to be in LA the day after I wrote it he was like let me do one thing and he went into the live room and I have a pair of timpani that he bullied me into buying um just like the silliest thing I ever did was buy a pair of timpani anyway but I um he just got behind the timps and just did this roll and the whole cue is like three minutes long and there's very subtly underneath it there's just this and it's kind of like swelling and dying away and I think it gives it this this little like jittery energy to it that that is barely audible but it like helps to otherwise it's just kind of long chords and and melody and stuff but there is like this Mm -hmm. slightly nervous energy underneath it that I think kind of helps with the length of the scene anyway go on Mike tell us about it no that's I mean yeah that was the first song and and it's the from a technical technically that was a very very hard thing to do but there were so many pieces that had to come together um to make that work because I want it to be one long continuous shot it has sort of three emotional parts to it there's the sort of escape then there's the grief and then there's the commitment right so these things they're like there's the commitment to his next choice which is not giving anything away um and uh and of course it one continuous long shot through LA uh, that is very dynamic in, in many ways and uh, and it's sustained for, for as Will says, like three minutes. Um, and we, again, we didn't have a lot, we didn't have, you know, our budget was very constrained in many ways. And so we didn't have a lot of days to shoot things. So we were, ve- we had, and we had very limited time to shoot this. And I, I, it was very important for me that we shot it at magic hour so that, means you get two takes and that's it uh, of the whole thing. We rehearsed it. We had an amazing steady cam operator and our DP Marcus Porter is a genius. And uh, we had a whole grit truck. We had, we basically had a steady cam running that jumped on a truck and then the truck started driving and then we cleaned the footprints. We had these like uh, blocks that they drove over and then we pulled them away. We had a follow van on the side controlling focus. Um, that ha- and, and so it was so complicated and we had a, an extra light on a dimmer just to give him an eye light as we were walking. It's so complicated. And we did it and we, we only had enough money basically sort of to do it one day. Cause we, we had, we had to clo- close off like 12 streets too. And, and, and you need permissions from four different agencies to get the canals in LA and the adjacent area of canals and then that other thing. It's, it's so complicated. Um, and so we had two takes to pull it off and we did it. And the first take is like, I remember when I was sitting there and I was like, oh my gosh, it's like working, it's working, it's working. Everything's working, everything's working, holy shit. And but by the time you're getting towards the end of it, the nervousness just starts, you're just like, you can't breathe. Cause you're like, it can't mess up in the last 20 seconds. Cause we just ran the whole football field and we're like in the three yard line. And all of a sudden like a, a our, we filmed ourselves. We corrupted the shot, basically. Like our follow van got in the shot and we're all like, the whole camera crew is like there, like watching it. And we're like, 
And I, I, it was the only moment where I almost like, I just like fell on the ground. I was like, no. Uh, and then we did it a second time and the dimmer on the, the eye light uh, got tripped. And so all of a sudden this bright light turns on in the middle of the scene or like three quarters of the way through. And I was like, no. So we did it twice and both of them had technical issues. And I remember that day we were just like, I was talking to the line producer and our producers and Owen and everybody we were just like, what are we going to do? Like, I, like, yes, we, it kind of works and maybe we can cut around it or oh, like maybe we can use visual effects. And then uh, our line producer says, you know what? We have a little extra cash. And if you really, really want it, we'll block off tomorrow magic hour and do it one more time. So, so we closed off the streets again for, you know, that chunk of time we have to dress all those blocks and we did it two more times and uh and oh my gosh now i can't even remember which take we used i think we used the final the fourth take i guess that was it anyways uh and and so owen you know owen was brilliant all the way throughout and then our techno technical stuff landed it and that's you know that's what makes that final scene so potent is because you're 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 present through this this going from survivalism to grief to a commitment to a new decision over the course of one walk. And, and I'm glad you, you, you described that because I wouldn't have thought about it like that. But as you were telling me, like I can see the stage of those three stages, especially when he when he uh, when he summits the incline, and then that's you know his his new reality. He's he's making made that decision. Um, that that's awesome. That's really awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, forgive me if I'm saying too much. Sometimes I feel like it's good to just experience whatever you experience, but at least that was the that was the goal. That's what oh. we were chasing, and then whatever comes out is what comes out. Thanks, guys, for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for talking about the movie Bliss. Uh, the spotlight is on you guys now. Where can everyone find this movie when it comes out? Where can they find you online? Uh, February 5th. Amazon Prime. Oh. Yeah, and the soundtrack album will be available too on uh, Milan Sony Records. I'm going to have to get uh, one of those soundtracks.